Ambassador Kirsten Hillman has served as Canada's ambassador to the United States in Washington, D.C. since 2020. Ambassador Hillman was the first woman to be appointed to this position. She has stewarded the bilateral relationship through two administrations and the COVID-19 pandemic. She has a long career, 25 years, with the Government of Canada. She has held various senior diplomatic policy and legal positions at home and abroad. She has played critical roles in negotiating important trade agreements for Canada, including the modernization of NAFTA. So join me in welcoming to our City Club, Canada's Ambassador to the United States, Kirsten Hillman. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. Make sure I'm on here. Thank you, Dr. Mazur. Welcome, Ambassador. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Welcome to Chicago. <clears throat> Welcome, of course, to the City Club of Chicago. We like to gather all of the, uh, the, the, the movers and shakers, the uh, various sectors of Chicagoans who care about affecting policy, but they also care about culture and philanthropy and business and trade and government. Um, so there's there's so much that we're doing here and we're expanding and, and we're going global. So having you here is such an honor. Um, and, and on behalf of, again, I'm Dan Gibbons uh, from the City Club of Chicago. And on behalf of our board, uh, and of course, Dr. Mazur, our chair emeritus, and uh, Jackie Robinson-Ivy, our, our chair, uh, we want to welcome all of you and certainly welcome uh, Ambassador. Thank you, Dan. It's a delight to be here. It's a, and it's a gorgeous day and delicious lunch, so thank you. Great. Well, we've got a, we, we've, we have a whole host of topics, right? We have all sorts of things that we talked a little bit during lunch, and, um, and, and we'll get right to it. One thing I just want to mention, I, I know when, when career diplomats are appointed to ambassadorships, that, that's something pretty important, right? That means that that is a top-tier relationship, and knowing your history uh, you know, in the, in the government, in the Canadian government, um, it, it's pretty clear to me with your, re, you know, with your resume and your experience that, uh, that the relationship between Canada and the U.S. is top tier, nothing, nothing to mess with, especially these days. Um, what, what have you seen on the state of that relationship in the last few years? You've been ambassador since 2020, right? Since 2020? Yes. Um, and, I was, and I was acting for about nine months before that. So I was in the role of an acting capacity before that. So I've been, I was, my official appointment started more or less, believe it or not, about three days after we had to put severe restrictions on the Canada-U.S. border. But I had been managing that pandemic uh, relationship uh, since the outset, since the summer before the pandemic hit. Um, I, I, I guess what I would say about the state of the relationship right now is, and, and you know, this very complicated world in which we're living that we seem to be facing 
crisis after challenge after crisis, whether it's an inter- it's a, pand- a global pandemic, whether it's a war in Europe, whether now it's 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 the challenges in the Middle East, but also our economic challenges in in recovering from the pandemic, climate change. I mean, there's just so much happening that. Um, we, and we were talking a little bit about this before we came up, my main area of focus when I leave Washington and come around the United States is to take a minute to talk to people across the country about the scope and breadth of our relationship. Um, a $1 trillion trading relationship, right? Um, a 6,000-mile land border a deep historical, legal, cultural, people-to-people ties, literally millions of Canadians and Americans interacting every day, whether it's business, whether it's academia, it's students, it's vacationers going both ways. You know, there is not a single aspect of our societies where Canadians and Americans aren't interacting every day. So all of this is quite fantastic. Um, And frankly, more important now than it's ever been. So I just came, before coming here to Chicago, from the Great Lake Governor's uh, meeting in Cleveland. And I had prepared some remarks for a keynote that I was giving at that, at that um, event. And in thinking about it, I was thinking about talking about how the Great Lakes bring us together as a region. And it's true, right? There are regions of our two countries where north and south of the border, the states and the provinces have have more in common with each other than they probably do with other parts of their own country. So I grew up out west, and somebody from Alberta or Manitoba, where I grew up, probably feels more affinity to North Dakota and Minnesota in many, many ways than they do to Nova Scotia or British Columbia. And it's true in the Great Lakes region, too. So I was thinking about that. I wanted to talk about the economic engine. I want to talk about the value of the Great Lakes as the freshwater source of our continent um, and how it brings that region together. But I couldn't stop from also saying all these things that the Great Lakes region has. You know what it doesn't have? It doesn't have fortifications, on the water. It doesn't have mechanisms to keep us away from each other, to separate us from each other, to protect us from each other. It has exactly the opposite. It has joint policing. It has joint economic development organizations. It has joint incubator, you know, accelerators of, of the most modern business and technologies. We do everything we can to be closer together. And I think we need to stop for a second and just appreciate that enormous great good fortune that we have as neighbors. And beyond just appreciating it, I think we need to invest in it. And that is my main message right now on the state of the Canada-U.S. relationship. It's that let us take, you know, oftentimes things that are working well, anyone who's in a happy marriage will know this from time to time, when things are working well, you just sort of take it for granted. But that's not a very good idea, right? What we should do is things that are working well, we should double down. We should spend maybe just 2% of our energy on making it better and making it stronger because 
we need it actually, given all of the other ways in which we're pull, being pulled in so many directions. Oh, especially these days in the so, world. So that's the relationship. We, yep. we, we share values. We share legal systems. We share an economy. We share our, our, our demo, democratic values. We share a, a desire to protect our natural environment. We share the biggest, the world's biggest energy relationship on the planet between Canada and the United States, right? And we are both committed to energy transition. However, that takes place and however long that takes we both have that commitment so let's build on that right let's make the most of that how about chicago in particular we've got such a great we have a sister city relationship with toronto we have um we have great canadian companies here and bmo harris and the rail companies we've got um you you, canadians send so many of your canadian geese here to our parks (laughs) that we try to send back every year after you know taking care of their business um (laughs) Could you could you talk for uh, and you have a great council general here. We're so we're so happy to have uh, Councilor Fakwar here with us and uh, and some some exports uh, also like Blake Anthony Johnson and Frank Gehry, the architect who left his mark on on Chicago. Um, there's business. There's culture. There's all the things you just talked about, and certainly the Great Lakes. Um, if you could talk a little more about that relationship between Chicago specifically and Canada. Let's, let me start with Illinois because I have a, uh, I have that statistics there. So we've got like $92 billion in annual trade between the state and Canada every year. $92 billion. Which means that Illinois exports more to Canada than it exports to its next three biggest export destinations, which are Mexico, Australia, and Germany? Yeah. Germany. <laughs> so, that's pretty incredible in and of itself, right? In and of itself, that is incredible. That is what exists today. As you mentioned, some of these great Canadian companies investing here, 45,000 jobs in the state are, and, and most of them, frankly, are in this, in the, in the city, are the result of Canadian investments. Really exciting new investments with Lion Electric, the first electric vehicle manufacturing in the state, and the first vehicle manufacturing um, start up in many, many years, over a generation as I understand it. So incredible, right? That's the state of play today. But what I think is behooves everybody and folks in this room and my team here in Chicago is, okay, that is amazing. What's the future? What is, where does this city want to be in five years? Where does this state want to be in five years? Where do they want to be in 10 years? And how, and, and how does that match up with Canadian objectives, and where do we therefore want to prioritize our work together? And I, I met with the governor yesterday, and that was essentially the, the bulk of the conversation that we had. So as people know, deeply committed, he's deeply committed to making this city a tech hub, right? Well, we are very committed to having, we have a variety of hubs across Canada, and I think what we'd like to say is, Please, Chicago, make sure you make as many connections with those hubs as you can. Make as many connections with our startups as you can. We have, after the United States, and we're only 40 million people, the most uh, um, quantum startups in the world. And quantum, I know, is, again, a priority for the city. So make sure we're making the most of those connections and we're working together. Um, electrification of transportation, battery technology, um, Canada has, and I think we're, I, I believe we're the only country on the planet that can go from 
extracting the minerals required for lithium-ion batteries to vehicles rolling off of the assembly line. And so we are working very much in trying to ensure a full um, complement of everything that is required to electrify a transportation system. But it doesn't mean we're doing it all all the time in every project. It does mean that we can have enormous complementarity with, with the United States. A lot of that happens in the sort of the Ontario, Michigan region, but it's, it's growing across the country, right? And we should, be, we should really be looking at some of those exciting opportunities. So my suggestion is it is an incredible relationship. It could be even more. This is a hub of your country. This is an economic driver of your country. And we, as a country, are an economic driver of your country. So let's make sure we're doing as much as we can. And I would, I would finish this with, as we are pursuing these visions for where we want to be in the next two, five, ten years together, let's make sure we make the most of the fact that we are, you are a city and we are a country that is devoted to in ensuring this economic um, advancement, ensuring the advancement of communities that have been left behind, right? Communities that are suffering, communities that haven't necessarily had all of the economic opportunities that they should. We're deeply committed to reconciliation with our Indigenous people. You know, we want to make sure that our future objectives are inclusive, um, and reflect the diversity of our society. I'm, I'm sensing a city club. <laughs> I'm thinking we may need to follow up uh, this program with the city club delegation visit to Canada and, 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 ha- and tackle. Maybe we do that in partnership with World Business Chicago or one of these great in- organizations in the Council General's office to to just do what you're saying and elevate that and push that in so many different ways. Um, Incredible, and, and there's so much more. And I'm taking all these notes, and there's so many topics that, that now we're really going to have to hit. Um, but I do also want to make sure we ask uh, we have questions from the audience. So if you do have any, please take them down now. We're going to hit a few different topics, but there's some paper on your um, on your tables, and uh, you're welcome to share those with me. You could even just walk them up, or, or Amanda's here, because um, we've so you just you just hit about ten more times. I'm, I'm trying to take notes and. Uh, and keep up along along the way. Um, you you met with the governors. You've met with you. I know you've had the Great Lakes mayors at, at one point, and I think in D.C. Um, did, I think you recently had a trip with President Biden, right? Was that yes? So President Biden visited Canada in uh, the spring for a day and a half. It was amazing. It was you know I'm sure everybody here in this room has an experience, and you're 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 going through the experience, and you're like oh boy, I'm going to remember this forever. And there were a few moments over that day and a half that were remarkable and very uplifting and very positive. And, and again, things are tough, right? The world is a tough place. People's lives more locally can be really tough. And so you have to stop and enjoy and, and appreciate these moments. Um, we did have a visit. I'll, I'll tell you what it was interesting, and there's there's a lot to talk about there. But I'll tell you one of the things, and this you folks might find this interesting. It's a bit of an inside baseball. Um, so the prime minister and the we pres- love baseball. Well, yeah, we, and we love inside. I, <laughs> so keep it keep it coming. My inside baseball has has actually nothing to do with baseball because <laughs> probably everyone else knows more about baseball than me, other than I enjoy. We, we do hockey also. We okay. Do <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Inside baseball and hockey. In any case. 
Um, so the prime minister and the president talk probably every three or four weeks. Um, they meet all over the world several times, I mean, all the time, really, at the G20, at the G7, at the Summit of the Americas, here in D.C., you know, they meet a lot. But when they're meeting, not here in D.C., here in the United States, but in D.C., but when they're meeting in the, in the context of these other meetings, yes, they talk about Canada-U.S. stuff, but largely they're there for some other purpose. And so that takes up sort of the energy and the attention as well. What was incredible about that trip was that, first of all, it was long, right? He stayed overnight. It was a day and a half. Um, and it was all about the Canada-U.S. relationship. Yes, of course, we talked about the war in Ukraine and we talked about other things, but it was really the focus was the Canada-U.S. relationship. So getting them to talk about that for a day and a half in and of itself is amazing. And talking in private, just the two of them, without people like me, like taking notes or telling them, oh, but don't forget to say this or don't forget to say that, just building a relationship as, as human beings is, is always important. But even more important was the sort of three weeks leading up or four weeks leading up to the visit where, so we, we talked to the White House all the time. We talked to the transportation department, the energy department, the, the, you know, the various cabinet secretaries that are important for key things in the Canada-U.S. relationship, which is frankly most of them, and the White House. But when we're talking, we're talking about very specific issues. We're talking about water levels in the St. Lawrence Seaway. We're talking about an MOU that we're doing on this or that. We're talking about challenges we might be facing at the border. We're talking about a project we're doing together. We're talking about our law enforcement agencies are talking, you know, all that. We're talking about specific things. And they know, and we are, we have all the conversations and problem solving we need, but very file specific. Heading into that meeting, on our side and on their side, you had all of the senior White House staff. So Jake Sullivan, um, Brian Deese at the time was the, was the chief economic advisor. You had that entire cadre of senior advisors to the president, as well as a few key cabinet secretaries, talking to each other about us talking to each other about what matters to them about this relationship. And the same thing happened on our side. And it was, it was that process, actually, in both of our systems that was fantastic because these, they're all very busy people with very specific mandates. But all of a sudden, they were able to take a step back and say, tying to my earlier point, what is, how do we derive strength, how from this relationship? How do we derive security from this relationship? How do we, how do we look at overall what it means to us as a country, Canada, what it means to us as a country, the United States, and then be very, um, mindful about the next kinds of things we want to do. And that was brilliant. And ultimately, if I were to say, what came out of that during that visit in every single conversation that we had with the president all, you know, all day long, it was looking very um, specifically at how we can be sources of strength for each other, how we can help each other be stronger, be better, be more secure, be more safe, be more prosperous, be more inclusive, be more humane, be more you know, live up to our values uh, as best we can. And it was 
awesome. It sounds delightful. It was awesome. Right, with, and then, of course, everything. you have to implement, which is which is always. But but just having that, just having everybody yeah. around the table, taking a moment to say, kind of back to my first comment. Okay, we are. It is a great good fortune that we have. Let's make sure we don't get distracted by all the things that are difficult all the time, 100% of the time, but that we build on and amplify the things that, that are sources of strength for each other. So in, in, in that spirit, I guess, um, there's so much going on in the world. I mean, just, just stepping back a little bit further, and, and I know you've been all over the world in your career. And um, could, could we talk for a couple of minutes and, and you know, obviously with... We can always keep an eye on the Canadian-U.S. relationship and what we can be doing together. And um, but, how about the war, mm. the 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 you know recent atrocities in in the, um, Israel and and potentially in Gaza? Um, what is what are you hearing? I know you're right in the middle of D.C. most of the time when you're not traveling. Um, what are you hearing? What can we do together as Canada and the U.S. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just any any extra insight there, we'd appreciate hearing. Well, there are know. stages to these things. Uh, and unfortunately, I think we're in a stage that is crisis management right now, right? Crisis management and doing everything we can to avoid escalation and regionalization of a war. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of what Canada and the U.S. are, are, are doing together... I've spent every single morning in, for the past four mornings um, working with my government out of Ottawa and coordinating with my contacts in Washington so that we can assist each other in evacuations from Israel. Uh, so Canada is sending sort of two charter planes in a day and still. And so we put as many Canadians on those planes as we can. And when there are empty seats, then we're like, okay, let's get some Americans in here. Let's get some of our other allies on these planes. So that, that is how, a very... How many, are there, how many Canadians do you think are in Israel now? Is it... Is it now I couldn't you, tell you how many are left. Because of? not everybody checks in with us, right? Sure. Um, but it's been tens of thousands, right? Oh. So, so it's a question of whether they want to leave or whether they want to stay. But we are, our government has decided to keep evacuating until there is sort of no more demand in that regard. But we are also evacuating friends. Um, the more, and, that, and that's, I think, going fairly smoothly. Um, but the more complicated challenge, of course, is Gaza. Uh, we have uh, just under 200 Canadians uh, in Gaza, uh, and the U.S. has, I think, close to 500. Um, we haven't been able to get them out. You haven't been able to get them out. And at the same time, we're trying to get food and humanitarian supplies in. So every day we're talking about, are we going to be able to find a route out? Do we have the equipment? Do we have the people? Are they there, the ones that we're trying to, like, right? Are they? Do we have them? Do we have transportation? And then how are we going to get that border open? And is it safe um, for both, in both directions? And there have been a couple of false starts. This is public. It's in the, it's in the, in the media, right? There have been times where we really thought there was going to be a, a convoy heading out and then the, the fighting got worse or there were other reasons why it wasn't possible. So we do that all the time with our American friends and, and other allies around the world. Um, obviously, we work very, very closely in Ukraine, Canada's 
put over $5 billion into fighting the war in Ukraine, in, in supporting Ukraine in that, including training uh, tens of thousands of um, Ukrainian soldiers. We work in the Indo-Pacific. We're one of the only countries with the United States that actually takes our frigates through the South China Sea in order to continue to maintain our perspective of the international law of, right, of passage through the South China Sea. So we, you know, we're working together as best we can all the time. And I didn't mention, or I should mention, a key priority for us binationally, Canada and the United States, is um, the modernization of the North American Air Defense, which is NORAD, which is this binational command, which anyone who followed the um, balloons, the Chinese balloons, and I don't mean to make light of the Chinese balloons, because it was actually the first time we had this North American air protection um, partnership actually operationalized, and it worked. I mean, it, it was good to see it work. For folks who don't know this, this is the only, that I know of, command in the world that is a joint command. So there's a, a, a U.S. commander and a Canadian commander. The Canadian commander, when they're in charge, command American soldier, American airmen and soldiers, likewise for the Canadian. And that is like, it's just like joint law enforcement on the Great Lakes. It shows a level of trust and integration and, and interoperability that, as I say, I, I don't think exists, to my knowledge, anywhere else in the world. So that's pretty great. So we're very committed to that. Um, and and the and modernizing some of the equipment and capabilities so that we really have a good sense of what's going on up in the Arctic, which is a challenge. Well, let's uh, let's take that to climate change then, because there was a question I just read actually about speaking of the Arctic, and I, I'm always interested in we can talk globally globally about climate change and, and what it means, but. It means so much for Chicago and for Canada and for the area that we share. Um, do you do you see Canada as eventually benefiting from the climate change uh, with regards to immigration? There's a question, and I we're going to get into immigration, but climate change with as the Canadian, I mean, the fresh water that we all sit on here in the Great Lakes, shared by U.S. and Canada. Uh, I think there are a few different ways that we can share that. And this this question actually came from Jim uh, from the Chicago Fire Department. Ed, Edworth? Aldworth. Thank you, Jim. Um, but is there concern that Canada will become a destination in the next 50 years of climate change refugees? Hmm. I think we all are going to become, those of us who have a, a safe and stable um, countries will become destinations for climate change refugees. And I think climate change refugees are not just simply people who are going to be displaced by desertification and food insecurity, but, and, you know, earthquakes and, and other natural phenomenon. But I think that this climate volatility um, leads to social volatility, which leads to war, which leads to displaced civilians and displaced people. So there is, it's, you know, we, we, I think we all know this, when, when countries are economically having challenges in, that can be caused indeed by environmental changes that make it harder to uh, be resilient to uh, any kind of weather activity 
or that lead to droughts, that lead to starvation, that lead to, right? Then people get agitated. And when they get agitated, we can, we can see social disruption and war and displacement. So there's, yes. So the answer is yes. But I think we will all face that. Uh, and there are these, I, I, I say this often. I think national security, as we've all understood it maybe 10, 20 years ago, the concept of national security has really changed. National security requires economic security. Economic security requires energy security and environmental security. These four concepts are inextricably linked. If you do not have a safe and stable environment, you can't real, you will suffer economic consequences. It will be a, it will be a pull on your economic performance. If you don't have energy security, as everybody knows, you also cannot perform economically and create the jobs that you need. And if all of that isn't secure, then you you have national security challenges. It's all interlinked. And so we have a responsibility to protect our planet against climate change, not just because it's, you know, it's the right thing to do to have a clean and healthy environment, but it's a really smart thing to do if you want a peaceful and prosperous world. Was that discussed much? At the you mentioned you're at the Great Lakes Governors Association. What were they? What were they well, really focused on? Yeah, you know it's interesting. Leslie. There were a few thematics with the, so I met all of the governors who were there, and there was there was a few thematics in every single meeting, which was energy transition, mm-hmm. energy diversification. So resiliency through different forms of energy, wind, solar, nuclear, um, hydrogen, and then traditional fossils, uh, recognizing that traditional fossils are probably, you know, here with, with us for a while, but, but there is a real move towards having all of these other options as well. So we talked a lot about that. We talked a lot about electrification of transportation, um, battery technology. We talked an awful lot about that. Um, and then we talked about how those different future-looking um, goals in our, in our societies, in our economies, can be drivers of good jobs, can be drivers of interesting educational opportunities, joint research, um, you know, uh, interesting promise for creating good-paying jobs for our, our younger generation and attracting talent, right, and attracting people to our communities. Mm-hmm. Great. The battery technology, we've, that's, that's something also, especially Illinois, Chicago, but the state uh, has really focused on all these other states, and they actually compete often yep. for some of these companies that are, that are, that are, um, that are growing and, and so quickly uh, changing the face of energy via batteries. Is that something that Canada's focused on? Is it uh, the elect- electrification? And We are very much. About- and, and the competitive spirit, I think, exists everywhere. It exists between our provinces um, as well. And it exists to a certain extent between our two countries. But it's great. And you know why it's great? Because demand for this technology will outstrip supply for the next 20 years at least. So it's not an if you or us or one or the other. It's like, let's all go as much as possible, as fast as possible, with the best standards of, you know, environmental stewardship and and social governance that we can find. So from Canada, uh, we we were just chatting briefly before we came up here. Canada, I think, may be the only country in the world that can go from 
pulling all the minerals out of the ground that are required for lithium-ion batteries, processing them, um, manufacturing the batteries. We have two big manufacturing battery manufacturing uh, plants um, that are announced and, and sort of starting to get up and running in Canada, um, and then the technology around EVs and the manufacturing of them. So we can go from one end to the other of the supply chain, um, which I think is 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 good for us. Um, it creates a really interesting ecosystem of innovation. But we don't necessarily do all the things all the time. I mean, we want to do everything, but it also means that sometimes, uh, you know, sh- uh, this region is interested in um, and has this new Lion um, electric investment in EVs. Well, we can supply the minerals for those batteries, or we can supply the batteries, or we can supply some of the technology, or right, there's, we can, partnership. we can do partnerships. Mm-hmm. And, and the important thing is, and I will give a lot of credit to, um, the Biden administration on this from our perspective is that there is a, there are provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act, which provides significant incentives for the electrification of the transportation sector and battery technology that count Canadian batteries and and batteries made with Canadian critical minerals and, and, and inputs as eligible for the tax credits that are available at the federal level. And I think that's fantastic. One, because we have them. Frankly, you guys don't really have very much of them. Um, you can count on the resources that we produce uh, extract and produce as having been extracted and produced at the highest possible standards. And that is not true for the most part in the world. Um, and so incentivizing that partnership and ecosystem, I think is a very wise move. Is that, did you just define French shoring? Is that, is that, is that close? Yeah. I, we were talking about French shoring the other day and you know, there's there's obviously a restoring of bringing with the supply chain breakdown that we all saw in the pandemic and 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 after uh, talked about reshoring and doing more factories and and bringing more to Chicago or I'm sorry to yeah to the U S yeah. but to Chicago. Um, but then I heard the term friend shoring and and it sounds like that's something that Canadian um, you know we can partner on certain things that maybe one side of the border is better at than another. Uh, has that, has that been part of the conversation lately? It is. Yeah. Okay. French oring. So that, that, I think the term was first coined by secretary Yellen because during the pandemic, you guys did this, we did this. We all had a really hard look at our supply chains and we're like, okay, do we have enough materials to continue to make masks and ventilators and, you know, um, vaccines and whatever. And we found that we were resilient in some sectors. We are safely food secure in our country. You are as well. We are energy secure in our country. You are as well. Or at least working together, we most certainly are. Um, We found some gaps in our other critical uh, areas, strategic areas and strategic supplies, as did you and, and, and many countries around the world. So we learned through the pandemic, but also, let's be honest, hard lessons around economic coercion that happens from certain countries, China in particular, not exclusively, Russia, right, turning off the gas to Europe, economic coercion, weaponizing uh, trade for political purposes against countries that don't share your perspective who are not your allies. 
well, we can't let ourselves be vulnerable to that with respect to certain kinds of strategic goods. We just can't. We can't as a country. You can't as a country. And so the pandemic caused disruption, but geopolitics and the weaponization of certain kinds of products and commodities also has caused a real think around, okay, let us define where our strategic pro- what our strategic products are and let us make sure that we are resilient with respect to those. So if we can't make them ourselves or don't have them ourselves or it's not fully efficient to do everything ourselves, then let's make sure that the countries we rely upon are reliable. And that is, like, honestly, that's the, the core of the Canada-U.S. value proposition. Because the complementarities between our two countries, there's very little to be on. And, and we love our European friends, right? We love Australia. Um, we love, you know, some, our friends in the Indo-Pacific and want to do business with them too. But if push come to shove, we could probably do everything we need to do between our two countries. That's the, that's a fact. And, and that again goes to the great good privilege that we have. So friendshoring is this concept of very strategic goods, food, fuel, um, strategic military inputs, semiconductors. Um, you know, there's a whole host of, of things that we're looking at where we say we need to be independent or independent with our friends with respect to those strategic goods. And, I, you know, we're in pretty good shape. But what it doesn't mean is decoupling. And people talk about decoupling from, from country, from China or from other countries. Yes, Russia. Yes, sanctions. It's a war. We are decoupled, uh, probably for the foreseeable future. But we're not decoupling from China. And I, and I don't think it's particularly great to, to talk in the terms personally. And our government feels that that's not the right thing to say. And it's not true, right? It's just not, it's not actually happening. And there isn't really policy in place to completely decouple. There is, there is policy in place to realign with respect to strategic goods. It, all of this reminds just great reminder of how fortunate we are to have this relationship. You're talking about Russia. You're talking about the sharing of energy. You're talking about, we talked earlier about Gaza and Israel and the borders and, and all the problems at all of these borders. And look at what we have here. It's, 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 it's a, incredible. It's, it's a great relationship. And uh, thank you for all that, that you're doing to, to make that even better. Um, amazing. How many, how many issues you, you, uh, you have to, you know about and, and, and deal with on a daily basis. Um, with all of that sharing, can we just ha- talk for a couple minutes about what may not be as easy? Um, well, I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. With all of that, how how are you dealing with immigration? Uh, as you know, the U.S. has somewhat of a crisis um, on our hands, and and it's it's moved into various cities, including Chicago, over the last couple months more than more than ever. Um, how are you, as Canada, dealing with immigration? And um, anything that maybe we may be able to learn from how you're handling it? Okay, so I think to answer that question and to kind of talk about immigration, we have to talk about two different things. The first is um, planned, conscious immigration policy bringing people in intentionally into the country. And the other is irregular migration, which is people showing up at the border claiming, you know, seeking refuge. 
um, for for obviously very valid and uh, almost almost always uh, valid humanitarian reasons. So those are two different things. On the irregular migration, uh, we have been partnering with the Department of Homeland Security for the past six months, uh, and this was one of the things that came out of the Biden visit, to amplify and supplement a policy that the U.S. has put in place in the Southern Hemisphere that um, tries to, seeks to manage irregular migration or folks who are fleeing for humanitarian purposes their homes. And what it does is it sets up these hubs in certain cities and requires individuals to come make a claim, do their paperwork, and wait for their moment to present at the U.S. southern border. And if they do that and present at the U.S. southern border, one, they are admitted, and two, they get a work permit uh, very quickly. And I can't remember the time frame, but let's say it's a month. It may be less, it may be slightly more, but it's like it's quick. They get a work permit. If they don't follow that procedure and they're turned back, they have a five-year ban on trying to access that more orderly procedure. And from what we're being told from the Department of Homeland Security, the countries to which this plan is applying, it has been a huge success. They've seen something like an 87 to 90% reduction in people just showing up at the border from those countries that are eligible to do it that way. Because word is getting out is if you do it this way and it works, it may take you, you know, three months to get in the queue to present at the border, but when you get there, you're going to be able to work. And yes, your your refugee claim will be processed, but while it's processed, you're going to be able to work. So the White House is very excited about this program. And when President Biden was in town, we partnered with them to supplement those numbers and to go to their hubs and to issue paperwork, if you will, uh, to people who can present at the Canadian border. So we're going we're gonna to say we're going to use this kind of system, what seems to be working, and we will use it for folks wanting to come to Canada. Uh, and so that is a positive thing. It doesn't diminish the fact that there continues to be people just presenting at the border. Obviously, that's a, that's a big challenge, um, much, much more, obviously, for you guys than for us. But it does happen at the, at the, at the Canadian border as well. We get, we get us, you know, for, for us numbers at, at one point last year, we had a, at one place in the Canada U.S. border, we had a thousand people trying to cross the border from the United States into Canada illegally every day, which for us, I know it doesn't sound like a lot for you guys from, from your perspective, but for us, it was, it was a big drain and a big, a big challenge. But that is being managed through some of these more orderly processes. So that's one thing that we're doing together and hopefully we'll be able to do more of that. But secondly, on on actual immigration, Ken has a very different um, situation than you do. So we are looking to, we just hit the 40 million mark in our population, and we have a a national policy to increase our population by 1.2% annually through immigration. So we are actively seeking immigrants to Canada. Um, A certain portion is humanitarian, The majority, though, is skills-based. And so we are actively encouraging skills-based immigration into Canada. Um, It's working very well. We we set 
we set some criteria based on skill shortages that we understand to exist based on our own data. But we also put a lot of power into the hands of our provinces. Mm -hmm. So one province might say we really need nurses and engineers. Another province might say we really need, you know, these kinds of construction experts, whatever it is. And so they have a say in who is brought into the country and then directed towards their province. And businesses do too. So something that's been very successful for us as a, a business attraction um, tool is if a company is going to make a big investment into Canada but isn't sure they're going to have the workforce, we will work with them to say, okay, well, we do have these immigration goals and they are significant, So what are you looking for? If you want to open this factory or this center, we did it with Boeing recently. They needed a bunch of engineers. And we said, okay, if you're going to make that investment, how many engineers do you need? And they get a, they get sort of a concierge service to help them bring those engineers in. So our immigration reality is, is I think quite different. My understanding is, and this is something you guys, you know, that is a, something that I guess, you know, has to be dealt with in, in Washington. My understanding is that's not possible for the U.S. federal government without legislative change. Um, but it works, so I would, uh, you know, I, I'm just telling you, it's for us, it's, it's a very, very useful uh, system. I'm, I'm taking some notes, not that anyone's going to listen, but maybe, maybe we'll, we'll share your video of, uh, of this presentation more widely and, and hope that some lawmakers and, and others are listening. Um, we always appreciate best practices and sharing them here at City Club. Um, I, have two, I have two notes. I have three questions, and one of the notes is reminding me that we have to wrap up. So. Okay. I'll try, <laughs> so I'm I'll try pre- to answer quickly. I'm, I'm balancing a couple of things here. Um, uh, we do have Deirdre. Is Deirdre Egan? Oh, hi, right right up here. Um, Deirdre asked a question. She's from Winnip- uh, a Winnipeg Canadian. Uh, who's been here in Chicago for 20 years? Uh, another fine export of of the uh, of your great country. Uh, how should Canadian entrepreneurs in Chicago leverage your team or other resources to to help create business connections for our startups? I I'm, I love this. I'm already okay. Thinking you you may be on our our trip when we go to Canada as a delegation oh, yeah. that we're just that I'm coming up with right now. Um, so, yeah, if you could talk about that, for example, she's part of a startup that's uh, looking for distribution globally and, and would love to target Canada. So I imagine there are resources out there. How can how can you help Deirdre? Okay, Deirdre, Deirdre, you need to talk to Madeleine, who is our consul general here in Chicago, who has a trade team. Uh, and it's a trade investment team. And the team is responsible for uh, attracting Canadian inward investment into the region and promoting investment out of the region into Canada. So that's your, that's your gay. Madeleine's right there. I encourage you to um, exchange coordinates with her. Perfect. More to come is what I like to say. We're going to have more to come. Uh, and, and what happens out of City Club, we want to document that, make sure we share how great things can start from conversations like this. So thanks again for being here. Um, this was very similar to that from Deirdre. Oh, no, that uh, that was Deirdre. Okay. Um, uh, you've, you kind of hit on this. Will Canada, uh, Salisa Gaston asked, will Canada become actively involved in the Mideast war between Israel and Gaza? Um, you did talk about that there are some, there are some hostages still being held there. 
do you imagine do you imagine a situation where Canada may um, intervene further in that? You know what? I, I that is not a question that it's possible to answer yeah, at this point. Yeah. Right now, we want to have our people home safely, and we want to send in humanitarian aid for folks who are suffering terribly. So that uh, let's hope it doesn't get to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but really, a great reminder of all the good things that are happening, especially with our relationship with everything that's going on in the world. This is such a great relationship between Canada and the U.S. And so much of that is is due to people like you and and so many of of you all in this room who make that happen and are dedicated to making that better. Uh, so. You know, and here at City Club, we are we are committed to bringing the right people together to advance each of these sectors and each of these priorities. We want to move business forward. We want culture to be able to work with the the, the talent and the people that have come from both of these cities and both of these countries together. Um, and and we appreciate all of your efforts in that. And, and incredible to hear all of this firsthand uh, from you in person here at the City Club of Chicago. Thank you so much, Ambassador. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all. We, Thank you. We welcome. We certainly welcome you back. And we have a um, we we have a one year. I'll grab that in a minute. Um, we have a one year. Um, membership to City Club. You're welcome anytime. Oh, thank you. And, and bring bring some friends. Okay. And next time we'll we'll help. As I said, I would be happy to help with any din- dinner reservations or others. We we are very proud of our city and uh, and and some of our cultural and, and uh, oh, there we go, Dr. Mazur. Uh, and in and, and our cultural okay. institutions. So we welcome you back Thank to you. Chicago anytime. Here's your host committee, right? Thank we'll you. Thank you, everyone. And, um, and we look forward to continuing the conversation as to you know where we all can do more to benefit this relationship and, and keep all the good things going. Um, we've got a great council general. We've got a great presence here. We've got a great sister city with Toronto. And, and so many uh, in this room, I think, are dedicated to moving that forward. So thanks again. Have such a great trip back, and we Thank hope you. to see you back in Chicago I soon. Fun. I hope so, too. Thank you for your time. Thank, Thank you, you, everyone. Thank you.